and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are unbelievably excited to be here today. Hopefully, unbeknownst to our listeners, we've actually had some technical difficulties in the last couple of weeks. A web call app that shall remain nameless had an update rollout and was very much still in beta. And we are now on a new web call app, which will also remain nameless. And it is working fantastically. We're very excited. <laughs> it may seem like a small thing, but pandemic times are dark and joyless, and we've got to take a win where we can. <laughs> so, with that in mind, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. Our first link comes from New Atlas by Rich Harity. An Oxford meta study finds honey most effective treatment for coughs and colds. Hey, hey. <gasps> oh, I'm so glad this is getting verified. This is one of those things that like we've known in my household, but couldn't, you know, expand beyond anecdotal evidence for a right, long time. Right, right. Well, we've got the data to back it up and from the University of Oxford, no less. It was a systematic review and meta-analysis from a trio of researchers, and it does confirm the effectiveness of honey as a first-line treatment for upper respiratory tract infections, or URTI. The study suggests that antibiotics are ineffective for these kinds of minor coughs and colds, and honey offers superior symptomatic relief according to the evidence gathered to date. Wow. It should be noted that this is really just for mild, minor coughs and colds sure. and upper respiratory tract infections. So this isn't like a drink bleach, get rid of COVID situation <laughs> or, you know, imbibe a bunch of honey and you're going to be magically cured. But honey has been known to have really powerful antimicrobial effects for a long time. Even as recently as 2018, the UK's National Institute for Health and Care Excellence went so far as to change its general recommendation for doctors and healthcare professionals, saying that honey should be prescribed before antibiotics for patients that have mild coughs and colds, which is pretty astonishing. Yeah, it's fascinating because a study that you mentioned was the one I had heard in the past about coughs. And so Mm -hmm. this is basically saying even infections down where the honey doesn't get to down inside exactly. the lungs. Exactly. Yeah. Upper respiratory tract infections. And so it obviously is super cheap, easy to access, has very limited harms. You're not going to get a whole bunch of side effects unless maybe you have like a glucose sensitivity or diabetes or something like that. You'll obviously want to watch your sugar. They also noted that not all honey is created equal. Mm-hmm. But despite the broad variety of types of honey used in the clinical trials, the results were still pretty consistent. So you don't have to necessarily reach for super pricey Manuka honey if it's harder to find. Basically, any honey should generally be somewhat beneficial, especially as a first step. Well, and it makes sense as well, because honey is one of those things that they found like in ancient Egyptian tombs that hasn't spoiled Mm -hmm. after thousands of years because it really, it's super antimicrobial. Mm -hmm. Does it say anything about the preventative use of honey? Because I've been doing a lot of that lately. (laughs) Just eating honey, hoping that it works. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? It's got very few side effects. Can't hurt. That's right. I'm sure if you want to conduct your own kind of study, the internet would be very interested to hear your results. That's right. Give us your data. That's justification for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sciencenorway.no, and it is titled, How Dirty and Stinky Were Medieval Cities? 
Oh, I'm going to guess pretty. I mean, yeah, very not pretty, but right, right. very. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So people in the Middle Ages were aware that a putrid urban environment was unhealthy, actually. And according to Norwegian researchers, they actually did take steps to confront the problem. Like a lot of us have this vision of medieval times, especially the Dark Ages, is just a lot of really nasty stuff everywhere in the middle of cities and nobody doing anything about it. And also like being immune to it. But the research shows that they did actually care and could smell with their noses the right. things that was <laughs> the stuff that was around them. What is that? That's like nose blind, isn't that that thing that they've made up for commercials that you just you don't smell it anymore? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, a historian and professor at the University of Stavanger, Dolly Jorgensen, has researched waste disposal in Scandinavian and Northern European medieval cities. And she says that in a time before underground sewage systems, a medieval city with a population of 10,000 people typically produced 900,000 liters of excrement and nearly 3 million liters of urine annually. It sounds like they were well hydrated at least. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was all like wine and ale back then because a lot of water was suspect. Right. So you had a lot of drunk stink. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And added to that were the copious amounts of dung from livestock that were kept Mm -hmm. in the cities from pigs, horses, cows, and poultry. An episode of the 2011 BBC TV documentary Filthy Cities actually described the streets of London in the 1300s and described them as being ankle deep in a putrid mix of wet mud, rotten fish, garbage, entrails, and animal dung, and that people would dump their own eliminations into the street or just slosh it out the window. So the researchers have been doing some work to figure out how true was that actually. Mm -hmm. So the medieval period in Norway began in the late Viking Age, which lasted lasted around the year 1050 until the 1500s, mm-hmm. and that's when the first Norwegian cities that exist today were founded. At the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, Axel Christofferson, a professor in historical archaeology, leads a research project on health and hygiene in Trondheim in the Middle Ages. In this research project, Christofferson wanted to know how did citizens in medieval cities relate to dreadful diseases. He says that it was thought that they had no knowledge of how to deal with them. But research, partly in England, shows us to be wrong. And the goal is to study how health evolves from being a private affair, as it was, to becoming a public responsibility. Interestingly, we've shifted in the other direction since then, Mm -hmm. with recent years, but that's (laughs) not included in the article. Uh, (laughs) So... Dolly Jorgensen is among those who've discovered that the medieval townspeople took steps in this direction and that hygiene was actually considered an important aspect of society. Dung and excrement wasn't the only filth that would pile up in these cities. There were also waste products of various trades like tanneries and textile productions. But the worst were the slaughterhouses. You know, intestines and heads had to be thrown somewhere. Right. (laughs) So complaints about butchers are actually found in older written sources from England. Like, for instance, in 1371, the city council in York forbid butchers from discarding waste products in the river near a monastery. So the butchers, being uh, intrepid entrepreneurs that they are, started throwing (laughs) intestinal and bloody waste near their walls and gates at another spot in the River Ooze. It's really pronounced (laughs) that way. (laughs) He's basically said, oh, this river is bad. Okay, we'll pick a different river. Yeah, exactly. And then the friars complained that the people of the city who used to attend their church were withdrawing themselves because of the stench and the horrible sights. 
They also feared that sickness and manifold other harm would result from this population, so the king decreed against the throwing of waste in the vicinity of the monks. Butchers solved that by dumping animal remnants in a graveyard, and bones were scattered around and attracted hungry dogs and birds. Oh, gosh. I I mean, they got fed, you know? (laughs) Wait, so if you're putting a bunch of, like, bones for animals and you're doing it in a graveyard, wasn't it possible that they could, like, unearth dead people? Bodies? I mean... Probably. Accidentally? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, you know, overzealous dogs, but I get the feeling that these butchers weren't exactly trying to dig graves for their refuse, right? Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't sound like they were burying them at all. They were just like, oh, here's a place that's already smelly, so we'll dump them there. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. So in 1284, for example, regulations were rolled out, like King Eric Magnuson prohibited people from throwing their garbage and dung from the quays in Bergen. And in Trondheim, they were banned from tossing wastes from the tanning process into the river Nedelva. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like basically the main leaders and authority figures of the day were saying, stop it, stop it, stop it. And all of the people were saying, oh, okay," and then just not listening and just throwing it somewhere (laughs) nearby. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Despite all these repugnant examples, Dolly Jorgensen does think that medieval cities were better than reputed. She said that there's this notion that medieval folks were ignorant, that they didn't realize that they could fall ill and they just threw waste anywhere. But that's not the impression she reached after researching sanitation. She said, that the complaints can really be interpreted to show that people didn't accept living in this pigsty. And the foundations of these myths were actually made at a time when Victorian cities were idealized as their opposites, (laughs) uh, which is now being challenged by researchers. In Trondheim, an entire city block has been excavated, which show that the streets were actually divided down the middle. One explanation being that they wanted to clearly mark off the individual residents' responsibility for cleaning and maintenance. Hmm. And they can see that there was actually a difference in how seriously various neighbors shouldered this responsibility, and some were diligently tidy and others were not. And the oldest written Norwegian ordinance about cleaning operations they could find comes from 1276 and stipulates that the public has to keep the streets clear and free of goods during the Christmas holidays. And the archaeological material shows that the rules were systematic and linked to each property facing the street. So it was probably property owners' individual duty to obey these ordinances. Hmm. And they weren't dwelling just in direct exposure to the street, but were often rather recessed back at their farmhouses. And privies would be placed at the very rear of the properties or in a compartment or closet in the house. So there was actually this sense of, you know, hey, you should go do your business away just from the... Right. They were making an effort, at least. Exactly. And despite that effort, a lot of waste would still end up on the ground. (laughs) Archaeologists actually found meter-deep cultural layers of trash from medieval times. But it doesn't necessarily mean it was all thrown on the ground. And sources actually tell us that in the Middle Ages, it was common to use trash as fill or a foundation when Mm. constructing buildings or making a new street. So there are actually sources showing that people were paid to bring their discards to help make a foundation. Hmm. Archaeologists do see that the dumping of trash lessened after 1350, uh, one big cause being the Black Death. Nothing like a good old-fashioned plague to make you start to be a little more diligent about cleaning. Exactly. (laughs) And to reduce the overall amount of waste being generated by those who are alive. That's right. You're going to have half as much feces being created when everybody's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the sanitation rules really kicked in around the 1400s. Like, there's evidence of tax being collected to fund street sweepers. Mm. Uh, You also had the privy and latrine cleaners who collected waste on a regular schedule 
schedule and animal dung and other waste had to be hauled off to dumps or at least somewhere outside of town. Piling up waste in the streets was prohibited and some cities had rules for when butchers were to cart off their waste and they also could have had a daily deadline when fishmongers had to clean away their mess from the street. Hmm. So you had a lot of evidence of this sort of stuff going on. And there actually were measures being taken to combat what they called miasmas or evil air. So Mm -hmm. they did have an understanding of disease in the Middle Ages that had passed down from antiquity, which actually wasn't too far off, besides that they thought that miasmas could result from natural phenomena like earthquakes or lightning. Hmm. That would suck. But (laughs) I mean, they got it. They just didn't understand why. But they did understand, like, we're leaving all this poop everywhere and it's making us sick. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they did draw a connection between stench and disease, which probably conformed to their ideas about miasmas as well. In April 1371, the English king expressed strong apprehensions about how much waste disposal butchers were doing in London. Uh, I like to imagine that he could smell it from his castle. (laughs) Sure. You start inconveniencing (laughs) the rich people and all of a sudden the laws change. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it still sounds like they had some pretty real issues, but it's nice to know that they weren't just an entirely different species of human that just wasn't using their noses for like 400 years. Right. (laughs) And it's it's nice to know that even people in ancient times hated their neighbors. Like they all had that one jerk on the block (laughs) not doing the right thing. Yeah. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right, well, we have one from The Correspondent. It's written by Jesse Frederick. It was actually originally written in Dutch and was translated, and it's called Blockchain, The Amazing Solution for Almost Nothing. Oh, no! (laughs) Uh, It it was pretty interesting. I mean, like I said, it was translated from Dutch. Most of his direct examples are from the Netherlands, but he makes a pretty good case. Like most articles on the subject, it sort of tries initially to explain blockchain, but primarily his argument is don't bother Because the point is, almost no one funneling money into it understands it either, right? (laughs) But the key philosophy behind blockchain, he's arguing, is anonymity and decentralization, right? It takes out this supposedly nefariously powerful middleman. For example, like a bank could decide to just remove the money from your account, right? You can't stop them. And theoretically, no one can remove your Bitcoin, which is the most famous blockchain example everybody likes to point to as, oh, this is Mm -hmm. revolutionary. But there's a lot of actual problems with not having a middleman. There's almost no oversight, so there's no reversing charges. Anything stolen stays stolen, even if you know exactly where it is and who has it. One study Mm -hmm. estimated that about 15% of all Bitcoin in existence has been stolen at some point. Yikes. And the supposed anonymity really isn't. It's pseudonymity, meaning your identity is just tied to a number, and it's on everything Mm -hmm. you do. And if at any point you are connected to that number, your entire financial history, whatever you've done on that blockchain, is exposed. Right. Right. So researchers from Qatar University were able to identify tens of thousands of Bitcoin users just through their social media, just sort of picking up clues. Another study demonstrated how to de-anonymize people using the tracking cookies from basic shopping websites. So he's like, it's really not anonymous. And decentralization seems to be hurting people who are using it more than it's helping them. Another major problem is energy usage. He said one of the key downward pressures that keeps the blockchain process limited, which thus gives it its value, is that the math problems get harder. But that means increasingly more computing power forever. It just draws more Mm -hmm. and more energy over time. And the two biggest blockchains, Bitcoin and Ethereum, currently use more electricity than the nation of Austria. They said, yeah, a single visa payment takes 0.002 kilowatt hours in the current system. 
But the same process through blockchain takes 906 kilowatt hours, which could power a two-person household for three months. Oh, holy cow. Yeah. And so he's like, it's super inefficient. It's not a good idea. He called it an endless, pointless arms race in order to facilitate the same number of transactions with more and more energy. Mm -hmm. Another problem is at the end of the day, it's a database, which is only as good as the actual reality behind it. Right. So Mm -hmm. Bitcoin has no reality behind it. So that's fine. But people are talking about using blockchain for land registries and, you know, distribution channels and manufacturing. And it means nothing. If I have unbreakable encrypted proof that I own a warehouse full of beef, if the physical beef is stolen or rotten or just never existed in the first place. Right. And he said these middlemen that they're trying to get rid of, those are sort of the positions that count the beef and look at it with their own eyes and say, yeah, it's really here. And yeah, I know who owns it. It's a vetting process or a verification step, essentially. Right. Exactly. And he said, in fact, blockchain is a really hip and cool thing that everybody likes to claim they're using or they want to jump in on. But in fact, most things claiming to be using blockchain actually aren't using it. He gives an example of the city of Zwiedhorn in the Netherlands. City officials attended the 2018 Blockchangers Hackathon, and they got very excited by the promises. You know, there's big PowerPoints and lots of lights. And it got the city officials on board, and they put a bunch of money into moving this municipal aid program onto blockchain. And the aid program had already been in existence. Basically, families in poverty in this city had a right to a bicycle and free trips to children's theater, that sort of thing. And it was previously a bureaucratic mess, right? They had to prove their paperwork that they were in poverty. They had to provide receipts when they got their bicycle, etc. And so the city hired a blockchanger who created an app that lets families just sort of walk into the bike shop, scan their app, walk out with a bike. The shop gets their money immediately. And this thing got national attention and multiple awards. And this little town of 8,000 people was declared, quote, one of the international forerunners in blockchain technology. And everyone's like, wow, Wow. this is an example of blockchain revolutionizing everything. The future is here. And so Jesse Frederick, the author, actually looked into this specific app on GitHub, where code is sort of checked in by coders and you can see what is actually behind some of these apps. And he found that there was actually no blockchain running it at all. And he called (laughs) the so-called blockchanger who made the app and he said, there's no blockchain here. And the guy goes, I know. And he said, well, I mean, isn't it strange that you won all these awards? And the guy goes, yeah, it's weird. We keep trying to tell people, but it doesn't seem to stick. And here you are calling me about it again. You know? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And he went through a bunch of other examples. And they're all from the Netherlands, but they're all basically, you know, people getting excited about this. And when you look into it, there really isn't actually any blockchain underneath it. Overall, Deloitte Consulting ran an international study and reported that of the 86,000 blockchain projects that have been launched, 92% of them were abandoned by 2017. What? And it's not to say that good things haven't come out of it. The vast majority of these things do have an app. They're just an app. And the blockchanger who made the family app in Zwiedhorn pointed out that, yeah, it's magical thinking. That, oh my God, Mm -hmm. this is amazing. Technology will save us all. But that's what gets people sold on the idea. And it's what got them funding for an app that is, at the end of the day, effective. Right. So, you know, he's like, look, is it a lie? Yes. But (laughs) if if it makes people able to see the change that's possible, whereas right now, I guess everybody's kind of bummed out by apps and they're like, oh, there's an app for that. And it's kind of become a cliche to say, oh, you're just going to solve it with technology. He's like, there really are a lot of problems that we still can solve with technology. But you have to sort of Mm -hmm. put this blockchain veneer of coolness on it 
And then all of a sudden, everybody's on board. I mean, it's basically it just seems to run on a hype market. Mm -hmm. And in that, it is extremely effective. Right, exactly. (laughs) And he said, actually, in some of the apps that he found that were technically using sort of a form of blockchain, the way they made it work was they had a single dedicated blockchainer. And therefore, it was effectively the middleman. Right. They had gone and put the middleman right back in. Nobody else was able to decentralize this thing. And he's like, and, you know, in that case, it works. So keep going, I guess. (laughs) I don't know if it means that we should spread the word that blockchain is nonsense or if we should just be like, no, it's great. Keep trying, you know, because then we get more good changes out of it. Well, it certainly dampened my enthusiasm. for. I think the USPS just filed a patent for blockchain technology or some kind of. Yeah, it's supposed to, I guess, address future elections that voting can occur by mail and the idea is by having some kind of decentralized ledger where it's still pseudo-anonymous but trackable in terms of verifying authenticity. Mm-hmm. Like this, this was something they just recently applied for a patent for, but I got real excited about it and now I am have some healthy skepticism. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe it is going to work great. It's just secretly not going to use blockchain. Mm, that <laughs> restores my faith right. in our institutions. Yes. But hey, hey, if we can use it to lie to rich people and get money to help the rest of us. (laughs) I'm all for it. That's right. Fair enough. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, I'm going to get back into our public waste conversation. (laughs) Forbes has a neat article by Suzanne Rowan Kelleher. Why Tokyo's new transparent public restrooms are a stroke of genius. Are they, though? Uh, Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, the article starts off with, at first, it's hard to fathom how a public restroom with transparent walls could possibly help ease toilet anxiety. Mm -hmm. But a counterintuitive design by one of Japan's most innovative architects aims to do just that. So even in Japan, where the restrooms have a higher standard of hygiene than much of the rest of the world, a lot of the residents fear that public toilets are dark, dirty, smelly, and scary. I think we in America can probably relate to some of that, even though we don't have nearly as many public toilets as they do in Japan, usually, you know, go into a store or an office or something like that. Mm -hmm. But there's a nonprofit, Nippon Foundation, they launched something called the Tokyo Toilet Project, and Mm -hmm. they asked 16 architects to renovate 17 public toilets located in the public parks of Shibuya, which is one of the busiest commercial areas of Tokyo. And then one in particular by Pritker Prize-winning architect Shigeru Ban. It's got these really beautiful, like colorful, transparent, almost like stained glass, but a single color. What they've photographed has like shades of sea green, lime green, and kind of a blue. And you can see right through them. But once they're occupied, they go opaque. And the idea behind making these transparent was to make these bathrooms accessible for everyone, regardless of gender, age, or disability. So you can actually see, is this a bathroom? Can I use this? Should I use Mm -hmm. this? And the idea was not only will people feel comfortable using these public toilets, but it will foster a spirit of hospitality for the next person. So if you blow it up and leave it, (laughs) People gonna know, right. even if you, you know, leave the scene or whatever, they're gonna be like, yeah, that's, we're not gonna use this stall here. At night, they even light up like beautiful lanterns because of that transparent tinted glass. And so they function as kind of art projects, you know, while they're not being used. And I don't know, I'm kind of a fan. Like, I know that this is something that a lot of European countries and now in Japan, they've started to kind of play around with a little bit more. 
it would be lovely to see something like that happen a little bit closer to home. You see, I'm conceptually, I get it. And I'm fine with the idea of like, oh, it's transparent when nobody's in it, but you go inside, shut the door, and then it becomes opaque. Except I've seen some pictures and it really doesn't look that opaque. Like when someone's <laughs> in it, it's more, I mean, it's like frosted glass. Like you can still kind of see these muddy shapes of what's going on in there. And I think unless you can really make the technology, make it opaque, opaque. I just can't see people being willing to use that. I, I think it would be something that you'd have to maybe ethically observe it in situ before right. going inside. So just, <laughs> hey, you go first and I'll watch and make sure. Right. And then, okay. So be the creep standing there watching other people use the bathroom <laughs> and then you'll know it's safe. <laughs> I mean, let's just install some cameras, right. set up a blockchain ledger, <laughs> have people check in and out, you know. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from nationalgeographic.com, and it is titled, A Fall Shattered His Body, These Medical Marvels Pieced Him Back Together. Hmm. So this is a pretty intense article that has some vivid descriptions of falling and landing and the subsequent healing process. Hmm. On a sunny Saturday in June 2019, Brent Bauer, who's 56, was standing on top of his summer home on San Juan Island off the coast of Seattle, power washing his roof. (laughs) He had one last hard-to-reach spot left, and when he pulled the trigger on the power washer, it propelled him backward on the slick metal, causing him to lose his footing. So Bauer fell about 25 feet, which gave him just enough time for two thoughts before he hit the concrete. This is it, and this is stupid. (laughs) of all the ways to die this is the one i gotta do (laughs) yeah yeah uh he first landed on his left heel which shattered into 16 pieces then on his right heel which busted just the same then he bounced off his pelvis which snapped into three pieces and splayed open 4.5 inches tearing major blood vessels and then he landed on his wrist which snapped and uh there's some other gruesome stuff i'll spare y'all for (laughs) right now you can check out the article but when bauer arrived via helicopter at seattle's harborview medical center he had severe internal injuries and multiple shattered bones which would ultimately take a team of doctors 10 surgeries to try and put him back together so over the next few weeks the team had to put him in an induced coma for two days to curb the bleeding, save his organs, and stabilize his broken bones. Wow. And yeah, so today his story showcases really the incredible innovation in delicate surgical techniques for repairing bone and in managing the intense pain that often accompanies these procedures. Well, I would assume always. Right. right. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I think part of the reason Bauer would describe this fall as stupid is because when he's not at work at the telecom company which he owns, he's a rock climber and a paraglider and for him these are not casual pursuits this is a man who's obsessed with pushing his limits mm-hmm. well he certainly reached that life goal i gotta say that's right but it, it's yeah i got it i mean i can see how it's embarrassing to be like i climbed this amazing mountain and it's like oh and then i slipped off my own roof and <laughs> yeah <laughs> Comparatively, in 1984, he was working on a salmon fishing boat in the Bering Sea when a wave swamped the vessel at night, and the crew had to abandon ship and float in their survival suits until they were rescued by another fishing boat. In Zimbabwe in 2005, he was on a tree branch trying to photograph a crocodile when he fell and landed on his back, causing bruises that bordered on necrosis and compression fractures to three vertebrae. And he describes it as, because I've been lucky so many times in my life, I just had this false impression that the really bad stuff doesn't happen to me. And I had to pause and be like, 
your barometer for what is really bad right. and mine are very different, and, sir. And yet, uh-huh. he's not wrong. I mean, he lived even through this incredibly awful thing. I mean, <laughs> to some degree, yeah. I mean, I think I might kind of be like, you know, I thought I was Superman, and now I know I'm Superman. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he got to push that envelope even more That's now. That's right. Huh? Yeah. He got extremely lucky, though. He fell within really easy distance of the Harborview Medical Center, mm-hmm. which is a level one trauma center, the highest uh, of five levels of care, mm-hmm. evaluated by the American College of Surgeons. It's also home to leading surgeons skilled in the cutting-edge techniques that were needed to reassemble his, you know, messed-up insides. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that the best foot and heel doctor in the U.S., maybe the world works there, <laughs> and he was Bauer's doctor. Yes, so, but were they actually in network with his health insurance? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, that's, I think, you know, <laughs> it may have been that he survived this, but saddled with millions of dollars of medical debt? I don't know, guys. Yeah, he might not yeah. be coming out so good after all. <laughs> yeah. They don't say anything about that depressing reality, but... <laughs> They're trying to keep it light. They're just going to talk about the shattered pelvis, not the monetary damages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is exactly. a fluff piece about somebody's near brush with death. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So foot surgeon Stephen Benershke describes how he was relatively new to Harborview in 1985 when his advisor tasked him with figuring out how to fix feet. Now, the medical literature back then had basically nothing on fractures of the calcaneus or the heel bone, even though these are the most common fractures in the foot. And most of the time, doctors just wouldn't operate at all. But over time, Benershke developed a method that has become the gold standard since. He will attach a pin to each shard of bone and then use those pins to move each piece back into place like putting together a broken eggshell. Then once they're arranged, he uses a sheet of metal mesh to wrap around the heel and stabilize it for the healing process. He says that the key to a calcaneus repair is remembering that its job is to hold up everything above it. The entire human body stands on its support. And he says, it's a very cool bone. (laughs) (laughs) He's the heel guy. Like, that's his obsession in life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So this innovative heel surgery helped Bauer clear one hurdle to recovery, but arguably tougher ones remained. A different surgeon had to stabilize Bauer's broken pelvis with an external frame fitted with six-inch pins drilled into his hip bones. And only eight weeks later, his bones had healed enough to just remove those pins, which Hmm. to me is crazy how fast you can heal from a complete triple pelvis destruction fracture. Yeah, Yeah, seriously. So one of the doctors, Reza Furuzabadi, who's the in-house pelvis expert at Harborview, (laughs) uses a full-size skeleton model to show where the pins are placed and describes how removing them isn't technically an operation. It's just a matter of unscrewing the pins from the pelvis, which can be turned by hand on the external frame. Oh. It's a simple procedure, but an extremely painful mm-hmm. one. And historically, <laughs> it happens in an operating room with the patient under anesthesia. But for Bauer, the doctor offered two options. He could go into the operating room and have anesthesia and a breathing tube yet again, or he could participate in a research study that involved removing the pins as an outpatient procedure with virtual reality used in place of pain medication. Whoa. Yeah. Bauer just jumped on that opportunity, I assume because it sounds really cool, but also because he wanted to avoid being intubated again. Yeah, but he sounds like the kind of guy who'd be like, I'm all in on something new and exciting. Yeah. Yeah, Is this high (laughs) risk and no one's ever done it before? I'm gay. Yeah. (laughs) 
So pain is a really tricky thing to manage because it's such a subjective experience and there's psychological factors that can undermine the effectiveness of pain medications. You know, when a patient is warned that the imminent procedure will be painful, they can feel anxiety, depression, anticipation, PTSD from prior experiences. And so VR isn't just about distracting the patient, it's actually about undoing these negative psychological effects. Hmm. And Hunter Hoffman is a research scientist in the Human Photonics Laboratory at the University of Washington, and he described that these all well up, and they are all knocked out by VR. So Ooh. Hoffman initially designed the VR program to treat burn patients during their agonizing wound care, mm -hmm. and so he made it a cold virtual environment he calls Snow World. And so to undergo the removal of that first pin, Bauer was wired up to the VR headset and dropped into an icy canyon where he was surrounded by penguins and mammoths he was supposed to hit with virtual snowballs <laughs> using a computer mouse in his right hand. Uh, and That sounds fun. <clears throat> shooting, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> shooting snowballs lowers pain in part due to the distraction of the interactivity, but also because the patient is willing to suspend disbelief. And mm. people are motivated to allow themselves to get into the game because the reward is less pain. And a couple of knocked over penguins, which is hilarious. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other advantage of VR is just how targeted it is. Drugs, well, you know, don't turn off or on instantaneously. But when a patient takes off the VR headset, the effects are stopped mm -hmm. immediately. So Bauer says that as the first screw was removed, the VR experience probably cut his pain in half. Wow. But for the second screw, Furuzabadi did the same procedure without the VR, with Bauer's permission, as a control in the scientific study. And he says that the pain was excruciating <gasps> and he had tears streaming down his face. Wow. wow. He said that he went in thinking he could handle anything for three or four minutes, but the procedure proved him wrong. Wow. Wow. And that was after he'd already done one that wasn't so bad because he'd had the VR headset on. Yeah. Exactly. Penguin power. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> exactly. So Bauer did have some feedback for Hoffman to use with the VR therapy. One of which is to keep score, which seems like a very Bauer thing to suggest. Right. <laughs> right. You know, if the game is more competitive, it's much easier to get sucked mm -hmm. in. And Furu Zabadi was also thinking that rather than a snowscape, he could tailor destinations to patients' individual tastes that could be built for future iterations to make the experience even more immersive. Wow. So, yeah, I'm super on board with that, yeah. especially if you think about the application for kids where you can't give them as much pain medication or you you know it's a lot more delicate to be pumping drugs right. into smaller bodies and if you could put a VR headset on them and let them just go to town on some penguins they might actually come out of it just fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now that Bauer's dealt with all this VR unscrewing stuff, it's the visions of real life escapes that are driving him to still get stronger as winter turns into spring. Mm -hmm. He's taken an early retirement and is now focused on building up a life full of joy and adventures, but maybe with less unnecessary risk. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was going to say, he didn't sound like somebody with an unadventureful life before. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> He had known his girlfriend, Sarah Bartolak, for only six weeks when he fell off the roof, and she's still there, attending his physical therapy appointments, helping manage his in-home care, and smirking lovingly as she listens to him describe his plans to go paragliding <laughs> the following uh. week. His mantra is just four good steps, and he repeats it, and he says that's all he needs to get airborne. And they did include a picture of him paragliding <laughs> with supports on his legs and all kinds of stuff. Oh, oh. And he's doing a lot of hard work to make sure that he can do it. His physical therapy and fitness routine takes up about four hours a day. Mm -hmm. He also does a technique pioneered in Japan called blood flow restriction therapy to encourage muscle growth through the careful control of oxygen. Mm -hmm. He also has something called a anti-gravity 
gravity treadmill, but he calls it the wedgie machine because <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, a pair of shorts you lower yourself into and it can adjust how much you're supporting your own body. Right. Yeah. So when he was first recovering, he was only allowed to walk with just 35% of his body weight. Mm -hmm. Now he's going up as high as 85%. And then during the interview, he says, in fact, let me try something and begins to start just straight up running <laughs> and laughs giddily because that's the first time he's run in nine months <laughs> since his wow. accident. I'd say he's, you know, due to get knocked down by something eventually. But, you know, so far it hasn't happened. So maybe he's going to go paragliding and do just fine. Yeah, absolutely. The article ends off with the author saying that Bauer emails them a few months later, this time with photos from a subsequent surgery. <laughs> and Bauer writes, Turns out that I overdid it with my activities and broke most of the screws that were in my left foot. <sighs> Yeah, it's now been more than a year since his fall, but without missing a beat, the note switches to his usual tone of relentless optimism. I'm doing great now and healing fast. <laughs> In a couple of weeks, I can start putting full weight on it, and I believe I will eventually get back to 100%. <laughs> I mean, if he's if he's helping other people by using and refining these technologies for the doctors, that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, and I feel like the relentless optimism and extreme risk-taking are kind of a package mm -hmm. deal. Yeah. There's a couple photos of x-rays, him in the VR kit and seeing the pins get rotated, and also a screenshot of the Snow World VR game Ooh. as well, uh, which is quite cute and very low poly and silly looking, but clearly still effective. So if you want to check out the detailed images, which aren't super gory, uh, you should give the original <laughs> article. Yeah, for sure. Next link. Next link. All right, well, this one comes from the LA Times by David Wharton, and it's a really fascinating Venn diagram between the question of the sovereignty of Native American nations and the sport of lacrosse. And so turns out lacrosse was actually invented by what we call the Iroquois Six Nations, but they prefer their own name for themselves, the Haudenosaunee. They're originally made up of the Mohawk, Onondaga, Cayuga, Oneida, Seneca, and Tuscarora tribes. And they have this detailed fable through oral tradition of how they invented the sport. And basically, the story is the powerful animals of the forest gathered for a great ball game, and they divided themselves as land versus air, right? So it was like the bear and the deer versus the hawk and the eagle and the owl. And the mouse and the squirrel wanted to play, but the land animals were like, blah, you're weak. Get away from us. You can't be on our team. Aww. And so hmm. the mouse and the squirrel went to the air side and they're like, hey, could we join you? And the hawk and the eagle and the owl said, yeah, man, we'll make it work. So they fashioned wings for the mouse from the leather of a ceremonial drum. Thus, we get the bat. And they didn't have enough leather left over to give the squirrel wings. So they each grabbed one side of his skin and stretched. And thus we get the flying squirrel. Aww. So the story goes on and contains this sort of detailed play-by-play -play of the game. You know, so-and-so had it and threw it to whoever. And ultimately, at the end of the game, the uh, mouse bat character ultimately scores the winning goal for the air team. So it's, you know, the moral of the story is, yeah, take the little guy because he's got skills you don't know about, right? Mm-hmm. The game was only later named lacrosse by a French missionary who thought that the Native Americans' sticks that they used with the leather cups at the end looked like a crozier or a cross that the bishops carried back in France. So it's huh. lacrosse. But even to this day, the Haudenosaunee continue to dominate at the sport. Their squad is called the Iroquois Nationals. And they generally rank in the top five internationally, even though they're drawing from a relatively tiny population. And one of the players said, this is spiritual for us. They approach the game with a philosophy of clear mind, which is a sort of joyfulness that blocks anger and worry. And other players who see them on the field say that it often resembles something more like a dance. 
right? They've innovated many of these special moves with their stick, swinging it behind their back, doing turns, going through their legs that other teams just don't use or doesn't even occur to them because the Haudenosaunee see the stick as an extension of their body. And so it's just, you know, that's a really cool history of the of lacrosse. But as it turns out, the Haudenosaunee often struggle to be included in their own sport because most international competitions these days have rules about what constitutes a sovereign nation who can participate as a country. Mm. And the guidelines can be very subjective. So, for example, apparently, I didn't know this, Puerto Rico competes as an independent nation in the Olympics. Oh. But Scotland has to roll their athletes in with the British team. They don't get to be a participant. So, I mean, obviously, it's there's some weird stuff going on. And it kind of keeps cropping up again and again. It's one of those questions where, like, somebody argues they don't get to play. They fight. They say, okay, yeah, you can play. And then a couple years later, someone again starts saying they don't get to play. In the 2010 Lacrosse World Championships, officials suddenly decided the Iroquois Nationals couldn't play, even though everyone recognized them as one of the best teams. All the other teams were saying, no, you need to let them play. And apparently at the time, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton tried to aid negotiations. She kind of got in there and was like, look, guys, let's make this work. But ultimately that year they were kept out. And then they got Mm. back in for 2011. But then in 2018, it happened again. And now, again, the World Games, which is sort of a smaller version of the Olympics, and is sort of like a it's a feeder program. It's kind of like AAA Olympics. They've decided to include lacrosse in their 2022 competitions for the first time, which would put it on the road to being considered an Olympic sport. But mm-hmm. the World Games this year said they weren't going to recognize the Haudenosaunee Nation. So they started a petition that gained 50,000 signatures saying, yes, you have to let these guys play. They are an independent nation. They are not part of America. They're not part of Canada. They're really their own people. And just last week, The World Games and the International Lacrosse Federation issued a joint statement acknowledging the Iroquois Nationals, quote, position of honor in the sport and allowing them to play. Nice. (gasps) So, you know, it's a great, fantastic, uplifting story from that perspective. And also, this means that they have the chance of possibly being acknowledged by the Olympic Committee, which would go across (gasps) all sports, right? That would mean you, you could have the Iroquois Nation playing in anything that the Olympics do. Heck yeah. That would be, I mean, the whole point of having things at the Olympic Games is to showcase best of the best of athleticism. Right. And, you know, it's also, I don't know if you guys saw, there was something recently where a judge ruled that, like, huge sections of Oklahoma actually belong to the Native tribes that originally were promised it Mm -hmm. in treaties. Right. And the same thing is true. Mm -hmm. This article goes into a little bit of the history of how, like, George Washington signed this treaty and promised Six Nations a particular area of land and then later, we just sort of moved in anyway. And, <laughs> and so there's been a lot of examples like that through history. So I, I think it would be really cool if this is something that we're transitioning towards of recognizing their sovereignty a little more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. If you'd like to support us and help keep us on the air, you can go to patreon.com slash week. There are, of course, many articles that we did not have a chance to get to today. Some of those articles include... California wildfires can create their own terrifying weather. Earth was a very different place before mud. And this giant machine could give us unlimited clean energy. So all that and more can be found on DamnInteresting.com. We hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.